Hello and welcome. You are listening to Desperate Acts of Capitalism, a podcast about money, marketing, and how it all goes wrong. Join us on our magical journey through a wonderland of burning money. I'm Evan Swope. And I'm C.T. Kelly. We're back. uh, We're back. Part two. Part two. My brain has been so full of tulips (laughs) these past couple days. It's not a sentence Uh, I would hear. I would think that I would hear someone else say. I know more about tulips than I ever thought there was to know about tulips. (laughs) The depth of knowledge about tulips goes far and wide. Exactly. Well, and you would be amazed. And like, because what I've got here is uh, an enormous amount of information about tulips, but uh, only a fraction of what was actually detailed for us. The tip of the iceberg. <clears throat> All right, so let's let's jump back into this thing. Cool. And uh, this will serve as a good like uh, catch up for uh, last time this on DAOC. Yeah, for last time, yes. Foreigners who marveled at the wealth of the Dutch during their golden age never ceased to wonder at just how in the hell they did it. While the regents of the realm and great merchants enjoyed unimagined wealth, their country was one of the poorest in Europe. Many of the other nations were were quite so lacking in fertile soil, charming scenery, and pleasant climate as the Dutch Republic. From the war-savaged plains of the south to the seemly, to the seemingly endless peat bogs of the north, there was almost nothing to suggest that this was any land of promise. Because... <laughs> Like the Netherlands is, it's it's freezing steps. Yeah. It's basically just like very poor soil and it's very cold. Mm, okay. One one Englishman described it as quote a, a universal quagmire, the buttock <laughs> of the world. <laughs> Damn. And for most of the Dutch people, this was correct. Life <laughs> in Amsterdam was long, cold, and few for luxuries. At the time, children slept in what were called, quote, cupboard beds, which were literally just drawers underneath their parents' beds. Oh, man, that's depressing. They would sleep there until they were about 14, at which point they were uh, they were assumed to be able to, like, go and get a job and contribute to the family uh, and go, like, buy their own bed. Okay, buy their own <laughs> cupboard. Yeah, well... The the ability to upgrade from a cupboard to a larger cupboard, pretty much. Right, yeah. Moving up. Opportunities did exist, but everyone was desperate to take them. Mm. As a Flemish as Flemish preacher Willem Bardatus put it in 1624, quote, There was a stuvier to be earned, ten hands tried to grab it. Um, a, a, a stuvier is basically... Uh, it's like one twentieth of a guilder. It's equivalent to about five dollars. Okay. It's it's like the nickel of a guilder. Right. If you were poor and struggling in the early Dutch Golden Age, you were m- more likely to slide down the social ladder than up it. This mm. is what made the offer of the tulips so tantalizing to so many poor Dutchmen. Ah. Because one thing that made the Dutch Republic unique among the countries of Europe was a belief in social mobility. Mm. In France or the Holy Roman Empire, no matter what happened, a peasant knew he would always stay a peasant. A shopkeep's son would always be a shopkeep, and a king would remain a king. But in the United Provinces of the Dutch Republic, 
where an immigrant son had become the wealthiest man in the richest city on earth, there was a shared dream. A village laborer could try his luck in the towns, a well-off artisan could invest in a ship, reinvest his profits, and work his way up to being a shipowner. For the Dutchman of the Golden Age, the days were pregnant with the expectation of change. This was the emotion felt by the poorest of the poor and the richest of the rich, but above all, the tulip traders. Mm. And here we set the third domino, for it was not the poorest of the poor, and it was not the richest of the rich that engaged so deeply in the tulip trade. That honor goes to a new class of buyers entering the tulip market. They were not connoisseurs, and many of them knew little to nothing about their cultivation. But what they were interested in was in making money out of tulips, and only making money out of tulips. And they called themselves the florists. Oh, that's such a cool this name. I mean, just makes sense, just, but we're the exactly. florists. We are the florists. The first florists were likely the chancers of Dutch society the itinerant and the indolent, people with no fixed income or employment who welcomed what seemed like a fine opportunity to make some money. It was less attractive to those that were already moderately stable or comfortable, the tulip trade, that is. Like, artisans could work for years and only produce a fraction of what some florists would eventually make, but most artisans were decently comfortable, but more importantly, their work was regular, right? Okay. Because when margins were this low, like when you were this close to being bone-grindingly poor, like you, f like you didn't want to gamble what you already had against the possibility of losing literally everything. Right. You wanted to make sure your income was stable and steady. Yes. But even so, the practice of maintaining a garden spread from the rich down to nearly every class in Dutch society. Tulips were catching on. Sir William Breteran observed of a poor man's garden at Leiden, quote, uh, It contains some spectacular topiary that portraited to the life in a box all the posture of a soldier and a captain on horseback. So it's like, even, even super poor people in the Dutch Republic had, like, beautiful topiary gardens, even if they were small. Mm. Like, so what do you, like, what do you attribute that to? Um... Uh, we'll definitely go into it later, but it's mainly the fact that this is the Dutch, like this is the Dutch Republic in 1620. It is a crushingly boring place to live, mm. and gardening is cheap, and it's something to do that doesn't require much attention or energy. Okay, got it. Another English traveler, Peter Mundy, posited that the joys of gardening helped Amsterdamers cope with the miseries of living in their marshy climate. <laughs> And that, yeah, that's true. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, it's like, if if one of the only things you can do is just make like a cool garden, and you're already like so depressed, and there's nothing else to do, like, well, of course you're gonna try to make a cool garden. Like, what else? Right. What else are you gonna do? Literally, what else would you do? You have yeah. nothing else. Yeah. <laughs> Sometime before 1635, the very first florists began to realize an unexpected profit from what had likely been a tentative first investment. Word of their good fortune spread quickly. The writers and pamphleteers of the time are unanimous in stating that many of the newcomers were weavers, who enjoyed the advantage over their competitors in that their looms were very expensive and could be pawned for a considerable sum of money. So, uh, 
like the thing here is that like it's the idea of the tulip trade started becoming so profitable that it was drawing in people from all walks of life yeah but the people that had the most success were the people that had the the biggest chunk of investment capital right mm. you need that seed you need you need money to start with to buy your first like starter tulips or whatever right and that was where and so people that were weavers had this huge advantage in that like looms were extremely expensive and you could you could sell it to become to get so that oh so advantage. that gets your your like initial investment just so you can start your tulip career exactly right which i'm sure many poor people or lower class people would there's like no way for them to get that or it's very difficult to get that seed money very much so okay got many it. visitors many visitors to the united provinces were struck by the national horror of living beyond one's means which when combined with the general increase in wealth that the republic enjoyed between 1600 and 1630 meant that uniquely among europeans at the time a significant number of dutch families had savings wow that's huge like i feel like that's a huge turning point it's it's crazy like to the point where like people would like english people would visit the dutch republic and they would be like horrified to learn that the dutch didn't spend every cent that they got right They're it's like, like a radical concept it, it literally like dis it disgusted people right they thought like it they felt like they were entering some crazy alien culture yeah well it's, it's just like, like even today like the concept of having say like real savings is pretty rare in like our generation so like back in that day and age that must have been like insane like no, if it, it's... No, no 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 you it's like nowadays it's like yeah most most of the people our age are like pretty poor and can't afford to have savings but like every we all our whole culture understands the importance of having savings yeah right? okay like we we get that savings are a thing that you should have yeah back then like the idea of saving some of your income was a new concept people oh. had never heard of that before holy like, shit yeah well because that's like remember this is this is the dutch republic in 1605 yeah people oh, are so dirt fucking poor like as soon as if you had even a spare gilder to spend yeah. you sp you spent it immediately on whatever luxury would get you through the next two weeks to payday right, right? well but yeah that's crazy the dutch because of like the dutch east india company which is something we will definitely have to cover at some point yeah um they're they're experiencing an explosion of wealth that is unheard of yeah like to the point where they're developing for like they're developing the beginnings of what will eventually become the concept of a middle class right which is like changes the world i'm sure right complete it's it is a metamorphosis unlike anything the world has seen before and that's this whole story right wow you have to remember that throughout this entire story like shit like this had never happened before yeah you know this is basically the story of the first market collapse, right? right? This is the first speculation bubble. Yeah. People had no, like, people legitimately had trouble conceptualizing it because nothing had happened like this before. There were not words to talk about it. Yeah. Whatever happened didn't have a name. Right. 
Wow. All right. Yeah, yeah. No, we like this episode is gonna go way <laughs> deeper into that. Yeah. Da, 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 da. Because there were no banks in the modern sense of the term at the time, we have no idea what sort of figures were typical, but according to Sir William Temple, it was common for a Dutchman to save roughly a fifth of his income, which is reasonable. Yeah, I mean... If we take this definitely. as true, yeah, a well-off artisan earning between 300 to 500 guilders a year might be expected to have had between 60 and 100 guilders a year to invest. Of course, the working classes lived much, much closer to the poverty line, but Temple, uh, but uh, when Temple made his estimate, this is probably rather optimistic. So, like, mm-hmm. even the, even the poorest people, ha- like, yes, they were super close to the poverty line, but they definitely had some guilders stashed away in a sock or something. Yeah, right? just like a smaller, a much smaller ratio, but still, still a percentage like a significant percentage of their income right right and it's it's mainly just this idea of saving your money at all yeah right but along with this instinct to save was also the instinct to gamble <laughs> i love this oh man no no dutchman said the businessman william usenklix uh, would would put his money into an old sock when he could use it to make more money Oh, things have not changed. Right, he's like, no businessman would put away money when he could turn it into more money. It's like, you're going to put your coins in a sock, you dirty sock boy. What? How how pathetic. The Dutch were notorious for their nigh addiction to gambling. (laughs) French traveler Charles Augier uh, wrote that it was impossible to find a porter to carry one's luggage at Rotterdam because as soon as a visitor had chosen one, another would arrive to play dice with the first for the client's business. Contemporary records mention that a man named Barnet Baker won a life-threatening bet that he could sail an, uh, a kneading trough, like a bathtub, down the Zuider Zee to the island of, te- of uh, Texel. And... Like the Dutch were addicted to gambling. So when you when you mention the word gambling, does that include both like literally um, games and investments? Just like like all yes. sorts of gambling. Okay, got it. The Dutch loved games of chance. Okay, they absolutely like they could not get enough of games of chance. Yeah. Okay, that's cool. An innkeeper named uh, Abraham uh, Van der Steen lost his house on a wager concerning the precise appearance of a specific pillar in Rome. Like, dude just bet his whole ass house. Yeah. Yeah. He was so confident that the pillar leaned slightly to the left. Dutch soldiers were even observed making odds on the outcomes of battles that they were currently fighting in. (laughs) That sounds like like a conflict of interest there. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it does sort of put your money or your life on a whole different level there. Yeah, (laughs) that's crazy. Compared to such insane wagers, tulips looked like a good investment. Yeah, yeah. Growing bulls was a lot easier than working an 80-hour week hammering horseshoes or working a loom. And because the demand for the flowers was steadily increasing, prices, at least for the finer varieties, consistently rose. Mm. No wonder the Dutch... Uh, thought they had chanced upon the dream of every gambler, a safe bet. 
right the the thing that we all seek and yet uh is very tough to find and again it's like this is the first time that anything like this has happened so you've got all these people looking at the prices of tulips and they're like wow they keep going up at a steady rate i you know i bet you they're gonna keep going up forever yeah (laughs) right oh the poor naive dutch it's not even naivete it's like yeah yeah it's like this is the first time this has happened (laughs) yeah like what do you call naivete when there's no indication like there's no way for you to know like it's not like anyone else yeah i mean hubris but like there's no indication that you would ever be wrong so i guess i don't know (laughs) it's it's just it's heart-wrenching looking back at the uh like looking back at people saying this and being like nope nope don't do that nope yeah it's not like they could have looked at like case studies of other people exactly yeah yeah. so this takes us deep inside the rolling tide of the zoodazi because for every los angeles there must be a san diego for every new york there must be a boston and at this time amsterdam had the city of hoorn 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 in the 1550s, Hoorn was the most famous city in the North Sea trade. But now, nearly a hundred years later, the ships that previously docked at Hoorn docked at Amsterdam. Hoorn was dying. Oh. It had slipped into a long, slow decline from which it would never recover. Oh. But somewhere in the center of this ruined town, in the early part of the 1600s, was a house. A house with three stone tulips carved into its facade. There was nothing special about this building. It would eventually be converted into a Catholic church. It is within these dreary walls that we set the fourth domino. It is within these walls that the tulip panic truly begins. The inscription uh, the inscription of the tulips was placed there to commemorate the sale of the house in the summer of 1633 for three rare tulips. It was in this year, according to the chronicle of a local historian, named Theodore Velius, that the price of bulbs reached unprecedented heights in West Friesland. When news of the sale, when the news of the sale of the tulip house got out, a Frisian farmhouse and its adjoining land uh, very soon after changed hands for a parcel of bulbs. Wow. These remarkable transactions, which took place in part uh, in parts of the Dutch Republic that had been badly hit by the previous recession, were the first sign that something approaching mania had begun to flourish. (laughs) For three decades, people had used money to buy tulips, but now, for the first time, tulips were being used as money. Holy shit. And just as strikingly, they were valued at huge sums. Wow. And, like, in terms... In terms of, like dangerous things that you can do for an economy yeah uh using something that is not money as money is like number two on the list probably right yeah that's crazy especially like a flower that can be like destroyed easily right it is difficult to be certain of how significant the sale of the tulip house was without knowing the exact varieties that were used in the sale but But although the price of homes in West Friesland might not have been as high compared to those in Amsterdam, a decent-sized home within the walls of Hoorn 
would hardly have changed hands for less than 500 guilders, and therefore the value of the bulbs would have been significant for the time. Yeah. The seller of the tulip house was likely a connoisseur, and one that had many other properties, and likely sold the property to an equally wealthy cohort, rather than to a farmer who had staked everything on tulips. Yeah. Even so, this transaction marks a sea change, and this was this was on an unprecedented scale. Yeah. The flower trade was changing as well. The bulbs bought and sold in 1620 were not the true rarities like Semper Augustus, which would not be obtained for any sum, but likely other superbly fine varieties, and later tulips of a lesser quality, most of which were available only in limited numbers, as they could only be bought from professional growers who could only sell to people who could actually pay their prices. Yeah. As the florists flooded the market, the price of the most favored varieties began to rise, slowly at first, but more and more rapidly from the end of 1634. This acceleration continued through 1635, until, by the winter of 1636, the value of some bulbs could double in little more than a week. So is this, would you describe this as exponential growth in value? Not yet. Okay, so but we're getting, the curve is starting. Yes. Okay. Like, this is, like, uh, we are on track now. Right. Okay. Of, like, just just sit back. Like, just let yourself absorb this story. Because this is a, like, right now we're, uh, we're sort of clicking up the hill on the roller coaster. Okay. Right? Okay. The tulip mania climaxed in just two months. December of, 13, of 1636 and January of 1637. In those few weeks, people and money poured into the tulip trade as Dutchmen across uh, the United Territories rushed to invest whatever they could into bulbs. Naturally, this sharp increase in demand pushed prices even higher, and for a glorious short while, everyone made money. And all that did was attract more new florists. Yeah. A contemporary chronicler gave some idea as to how prices rose. An admiral, an admiral uh, de Man that was bought for 15 guilders was later sold for 175. Is that, a, that's like 15,000%? Hmm? 1,500%? One guilder is equivalent to a, approximately $100 now. Um, but it's it's hard to map that because because of the price of goods. Yeah. Like, but like for a, a rule of thumb, one guilder is equal to a hundred dollars. Okay. But the crazy thing there is not the price; it's the it's the the growth in price. Right? Yeah. Buying something for you know buying something for a, you know fifteen hundred dollars, and then being able to sell it for. Uh, a little less than a quarter million. Yeah, that's insane. It's that it's batshit. Yeah. A Rutongil van Leda that was bought for 45 guilders was sold for 550. <laughs> a Generalissimo bought for 95 was sold for 900. So it's like 10 times the price kind of across the board. T- like at 10 times ti- 10 times at minimum. Yeah. And and this is only the beginning. Yeah. A particularly popular superbly fine called a, uh, a General dans Gen- der Generalen van Gouda rose by two-thirds in four months, 
then by 50% in the next sixth, then tripled in the next five months, then tripled again in the next four. A tulip that started expensive at 100 guilders ended at over 750 only two years later. A 70, that's 75 grand in modern dollars. Yeah. And a the Semper Augustus... A tulip, a single tulip. <laughs> and the Semper Augustus? In oh, 1633, man. its value was quoted to be around 5,500 guilders. By 1637, it rose to an astonishing 10,000 guilders, a sum affordable to maybe six people in the entire Dutch Republic. Sufficient to feed and clothe a Dutch family for a lifetime, and enough to purchase a home on the most fashionable canal in Amsterdam, complete with a private carriage and an 80-foot garden. And you could just step on it and it would be gone. Oh, just you wait. (laughs) By the end of 1634, tulips were all anyone in the Dutch Republic could talk about. One anecdote tells of a piece of farmland that changed hands for six flowers. Another told of a man so addicted to the tulip trade that his fiance left him for one who was only slightly less addicted to tulips than he was. <laughs> You've gone too far. <laughs> Bjorn, put the tulips down. You lose sleep three nights of the week. I learned it from watching you. My new fiance only loses sleep two nights a week. <laughs> right, just slightly less addicted. Yeah. Well, yeah. A third concerned a rich merchant from Amsterdam who was said to have purchased a fabulously rare rosen bulb, which he placed on a counter in his warehouse. But upon looking back, he discovered it had vanished, and his servants turned the place upside down to search for it, to no avail. He realized it had likely been taken by a sailor who had been in the warehouse at the time, and who had just returned from a four-year voyage to the Indies, uh, and had no knowledge of the tulip craze. <laughs> he scoured Amsterdam for the man, who he found sitting on a coil of rope at the dock, munching down on the last remains of his precious bulb, no. which he had mistaken for a strange onion. When the merchant realized what happened, he had the ma- he had the sailor thrown in prison. <laughs> Can you? Imagine? That's like the equivalent of like going in. I mean, obviously in, unknowingly, but like going into someone's house and like going into their safe and eating $15,000 of their money. Right, like a fourth tells of an English traveler, equally ignorant of tulips, who used his pocket knife to dissect a bulb he had found lying in the conservatory of his wealthy Dutch host. Unfortunately for him, it proved to be an Admiral van der Eyck, a rosen worth no less than 4,000 guilders. (laughs) The Englishman soon found himself hauled before the magistrate to pay for the transgression, or so the story went. It's just he had no idea, these people. They're just like, it's just a tulip, and it's like you're being thrown in jail after messing with one. The vast majority of people that weren't from the Dutch Republic at the time didn't even know what tulips were. (laughs) They had never seen a tulip bulb before. They thought it was just a weird onion. Yeah, and all of a sudden they're just like thrown in prison. It's like, what what did I do? (laughs) What did I do? While these stories are likely exaggerated at best and impossible at worst, their circulation only made tulips seem more valuable, more enticing. It should be mentioned that at the same time that all this was happening, something else was sweeping through Europe uh, in the 1630s. Do you have a guess, Evan? Uh, some sort of plague? 
the Black Plague. <laughs> Rip. Not only not only was the Dutch Republic emerging from a recession at the top of the market, but the wanton death and suffering caused by the plague created a labor shortage and thus a higher wage for laborers. Oh man, that's like the perfect storm. And when people have extra money to spend, they tend to spend it on things that help distract them from the wanton death and suffering. Yeah, right. Well, and here's the thing. It's like, so the like the dutch revolt happens and they they you know the the dutch republic fights off the spanish they're like ah oh, finally we can uh, all our soldiers can return to their normal artisan jobs and we can we can start injecting all this money that we've been spending on soldiers and ships back into the economy yeah and then 2 years later they're like oh, oh shit oh fuck we have a labor surplus <laughs> this is going to crash our economy like people they're it's like there aren't enough jobs and there's too many people and then the black death just shows like rolls through europe and they're like well yep. that solves the problem yeah, <laughs> yeah no more like... labor no more labor surplus guess we're good and entering the the tulip trade was easy all one had to do was take a half dozen guilders to the nearest seller buy some entry-level bulbs cultivate them over the winter and then sell the bulbs back to the grower easy as pie mm-hmm but the old growers and connoisseurs did more than provide stock to the newcomers. They created an established trade. There were no arcane laws to master, no complications to overcome. The rules for buying and selling were basic common sense. Mm. At, at first. At first, tulips were traded by the bulb. This was common sense. They could be purchased by the bulb or by the bed. The obvious next step was to sell the offsets the offsets as well as the mother bulb yeah. like remember that like remember that like when you bury a tulip it has these weird special roots that cultivate very quickly yeah logic dictated that offsets which after all would soon become bulbs themselves must be worth something on their own right nevertheless this extension to the trade was fraught with difficulty because it was impossible to guarantee that the offsets would mature to resemble the mother bulb if they matured at all mm. Because of these problems, trading in offsets was something of a risk, and the idea took some time to win favor. When, in the spring of 1611, a Harlem connoisseur named Andries Marieu was asked if he would sell a, a linen merchant buddy of his some offsets, he replied by asking the friend, uh, by asking the friend if he would really like to buy a quote cat in a bag, <laughs> which became a common phrase. Okay. The, the idea being that, like, offsets are a, a risk. Like, trading yeah. offsets is a risk. There's no guarantee they'll actually become the super valuable flower that you want them to be. And so right. doing risky trades like this was referred to as, like, trading cats in a bag. Right. <laughs> Which is a great term. Yeah. Trading offsets was significant for another reason. Tulips grow best if they are uprooted during the summer. Therefore, the tulip trade happened largely during the summer months, when the bulbs could be physically traded. Mm. Offsets, however, mature over several years, so it is tempting to sell them as quickly as possible. Limiting the trade to summer made a great deal of sense to the connoisseurs and growers, who preferred to see the plants in flower before they considered buying it. But the influx of florists, who had no desire to actually cultivate the bulbs, would benefit greatly from a trade that happened year-round. Uh, yeah. And in the autumn of 1635, the bulb trade changed fundamentally and forever. 
ignoring the customs of the connoisseurs, increasing the number of florists, uh, the increasing numbers of florists uh, progressed from trading only tulips that they had in their possession to buying and selling flowers that were still in the ground. Uh, wow. So that's speculating? That is what we are now engaging in is speculations. Nice. Bulbs ceased to be a unit of exchange. Now, the only thing that changed hands was a promissory note, a scrap of paper giving details of the flower being sold and uh, noting the date on which the bulb would be lifted and available for collections. Man, that's crazy. This phase of the tulip was of the tulip trade was called the wind, the windhandel, which can be translated as quote trading in the wind. It was a mm. uh, a phrase rich with meaning to say the least. To a seaman, it meant uh, the difficulties of navigating a ship close to a breeze. To a stockbroker, it was a reminder that both the tulip traders uh, and their profits were only so much paper in the wind. Yeah. To the florists, however. The wind handle meant trading pure and simple, regulated and unrefined. Or uh, unregulated and refined. Unregulated, unrefined, and stark naked. <laughs> trading in the nude. <laughs> That's how they did it. But, and so they go into it more deeply in the book, but uh, this became like the wind handle became a common slogan among the florists uh. and it became associated with people saying like ron paul 2012 <laughs> so like, it became a meme kind of thing my free market <laughs> the freer the market the freer the people <laughs> ball you like i i don't really cover it until later but i just have to say up front like once once the florists started becoming like a mainstay in dutch society people fucking hated them people because they were getting so rich no because they were annoying as shit <laughs> like it like okay the the florists were basically like they were getting rich but like most of them like okay yes they were getting rich off all this speculated wealth but they would you know they were nothing but talk about like the free market and unregulated trade and like how much better they were than the uh the big fancy merchants at the top and like it was it's ex exactly the same bullshit as all this like oh, i pulled myself up from my bootstraps and like got myself here and everything yeah it's nothing but these like just annoying libertarian dickheads yeah, exactly okay yeah that makes sense Flowers that had once been valued for their beauty now became nothing but abstractions for dealers who cared only for their profits, and the transfer of dubious receipts of ownership became a staple of the tulip trade. <laughs> like, I, you can just see, reading this, you could see this story, like, cresting over the horizon like a battleship. Yeah. There's so many red flags. Exactly, yeah, just like, what's gonna happen? Before long, it became perfectly normal for florists to sell tulips that uh, they could not deliver to buyers that did not have the money to actually pay them or any desire to actually plant them. Uh... Here, let me, let me read that again. It became perfectly normal for florists to sell tulips they could not deliver 
to buyers who did not have the money to buy them. I, uh, I'm getting uh, some uh, 2008 vibes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> By agreeing to purchase bulbs that would not be ready uh, for delivery for several months, the tulip traders had created what, uh, what would today be called a futures market. Simply uh, defined, yeah. a form of speculation in which a dealer gambles on the future price of some commodity, be they flower bulbs or barrels of petroleum. Yeah. The first futures markets... Uh, was established in Amsterdam no less than 30 years earlier, where wealthy businessmen would exchange stocks on things like lumber, spices, and textiles. Mm. However, tulips were the first commodity to be bought and sold outside the markets of Amsterdam and mm. by people who were generally not high-ranking merchants. Right, so... I am sure I don't need to point out the obvious risk inherent to something like future stocks. Yeah. The idea of selling something you don't actually have in your hands is not something that sits well with the, with people. Yeah. It also did not sit well with the Dutch government, who were keenly <laughs> aware of the dangers of, quote, selling short, as it were. In fact, it had consistent... It had consistently ruled that trading commodities not in one's possession was not only dangerous, but fundamentally immoral. Hmm. Good thing they stopped it and it never happened again. Less than two years after the practice was invented, it was banned. And laws repeating the prohibition on futures trading were passed in 1621, 1623, 1624, 1630, and 1636. And everyone lived happily ever after. <laughs> well, no, they they kept having to reban futures markets because people right. wouldn't like they would just keep doing it. Yeah, exactly. Like shows how like effective the bans were when it has to be reban eight times. Thus, the tulip the tulip futures trade developed in 1630 was not only illegal but extremely illegal. <laughs> However, the fact that the government had made six separate attempts to ban the practice, all being failures, should give you a hint as to how much they were able to do about it. Yeah. There is also an additional scruple when it comes to tulips. A man trading in lumber futures knew what he was buying. Lumber. The price yeah. of lumber rarely fluctuates. A man trading in tulip futures had literally no way to guarantee the value of what he was buying yeah That's in an crazy. attempt yeah right in an attempt to make the market more fair traders began weighing tulips to track their development and make judgments as to the health of their growth their weight was measured in aces a tiny unit borrowed from goldsmiths and logically tulips begun to be sold not just by the bulb or by the bed but by the ace hmm the thing about this is that youth bulb is that young bulbs increased rapidly in size and mass when planted, oh, which wow. only caused prices to rise even faster. Like, so they would plot the weight of a developing bulb, right? Yeah. And then, and then they would, you know, they would increase or decrease the price to match that growth rate because the faster the bulb is growing the healthier it is right but the thing is is that now that now you have tied the price of tulips to their physical ability to grow <laughs> like the, like the rate at which they increase in size which only further ramps up your your price and your growth rate 
Yeah, putting more gasoline on the fire. Yes. For example, one viceroy planted in 1636 weighed 81 aces. It weighed 224 aces when it was lifted the following July. A five-fold increase in weight and price. Jeez. This rivaled profit returns on the completely unrivaled Dutch East India Company, who had a monopoly on the spice trade, yet a single round trip to the Indies took two years. While it was gone, a ship was exposed to dangers like disease, shipwreck, piracy, and Spanish attack. Right. Tulips were not, vu- were not vulnerable to any of those things, and all it took was a single winter to grow. So, I mean, the Dutch East India Company were already dominating despite all those insane risk factors, and now you have an industry that's coming up with none of those risk factors, literally just growing tulips. Literally. Like, you can do it You can do it at home, pretty much. That's great. And it rivals the East India Company. The Dutch East India Company. The, the first and greatest corporation in history. And aren't they the villains in Pirates of the Caribbean 3? Yes. <laughs> Which, uh, and they're and badass villains in that movie. The Dutch East India Company are some of the most evil people in human civilization. Yeah. We definitely need to do an episode on them. As the market gained confidence, it also gained complexity. Newer forms of purchase were invented. By December of 1634, one could purchase bulbs once they had reached maximum weight. Uh, tulip auctions became common, as well as mystery bags. <laughs> so you, you could just buy like uh, a fun little paper grab bag of tulips. Who knows what they were, what were in them? Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. A few poorer florists even began to buy and sell shares of single bulbs. How? Just like, all right, I own 30% of this tulip bulb, and you own 30% of this tulip bulb, and you own the remaining 30% of this tulip bulb. Hi, sharks. I'm here uh, seeking $100,000 for a 30% stake in my tulip. (laughs) (laughs) All right, but how do I know which third is mine? I want that one. Sorry, I've already promised that to other investors. I'm out. I'll make you an offer, but you have two seconds to decide. (laughs) Compounding this was the speed of information at the time. The fastest any message could travel was by horseback. Because of this, prices for individual bulbs often varied wildly from town to town. Yeah. A flower that might be valuable valuable and rare at one might be common and inexpensive at another. One man purchased a, val- a bag of seven Van Gouda Bizardens at Alkmaar for 765 uh, guilders a bulb, and in the space of an hour or so, took them to another seller on the other side of town, where he sold them for 1,500 guilders a bulb. Yeah. So it's not like nowadays when you have like computer algorithms balancing everything out to yeah, figure there's out. No, there's no Kelly Blue Book for tulips. Yeah, yeah. As the tulip trade became became stable enough, wealthy artisans began to pitch in their hats. The connoisseurs and growers who had long been in the business were making bank as they sold to the flood of florists entering the market. Yeah. As a next step, they banded together to maximize their capital and improve their inventory. Several large tulip companies were formed. These would essentially be the people surfing the wave that would eventually become the tulip panic. <sighs> nice. Which, like, 
that mirrors the California gold rush almost identically. Mm. Like all the all of the fortune seekers coming to California for the gold, like very very few of them actually made money. Yeah. But the people that did make money were the uh, the people that set up shops selling picks and shovels and hoes to those people. Right, because that's more sustainable because you have a ton of people that are there, but people actually looking for the gold have no guarantee they're going to find anything. Exactly. As the autumn of 1636 shaded into winter, all seemed well. The number of florists and the number of bulbs in circulation continued to steadily increase. Prices rose steadily, profits soared, yet in reality, the tulip trade the florists had built rested on the shakiest of foundations. Even beyond the dubious financials of futures trades, there was also a specter looming in the background. The mosaic virus. Anyone who purchased an offset risked purchasing a breeder instead of the broken variety they desired. Mm. While by this time, reputable bulb dealers would consider the purchase void if the bulb did not flower properly, there was a greater problem of just outright fraud. Yeah, right. To an because to the untrained eye, a poor viceroy could look much the same as a less valuable violetin. It mm. was often difficult to distinguish between real deceit and genuine mistakes. And of course, <laughs> any fraud would take the any fraud would take the winter to be revealed when the flower actually bloomed. Right. And so in was, which time the person who sold it would be long gone. Right, would be would have skipped town. Yeah. Though this was only a concern for cautious buyers and consumers. The vast majority of florists were focused solely on the money that the tulips represented. Like, the florists weren't even trading the bulbs. They were just trading the promissory notes. Yeah. They, like, so, like, if they were trading something fraudulent, they wouldn't know for months, years. Yeah, right. Damn near everything that was required for the boom in the tulip prices uh, to turn into a full-on mania was now in place. Many different varieties had been created, some scarce and coveted, others cheaper and more common. A small group of professional breeders existed to breed new flowers and supply at least some of the demand for existing ones, a larger group of competent and enthusiastic amateurs. The rules of the trade had been established, there was a criteria for establishing a flower's worth, the traders and growers who dominated the trade had been joined by thousands of florists willing to sell everything they owned for bulbs. And finally, prices were higher than they had ever been for. Yeah. All that, ne- all that was needed now was a way of bringing aspiring tulip dealers together. They needed a place to trade. Mm. At the heart of Amsterdam, almost atop the dam that gave the town its name, was an elegant four-story building, built in the Flemish style and elegantly crowned with a clock tower. The building stood opposite the central bank and uh, close to the town hall in a position that emphasized the central role it played in the life of the city and indeed the United Provinces as a whole. It was Amsterdam's Grand Buers, the city's stock exchange. Trade here was strictly regulated and permitted between only the hours of noon and two. Each day's trading had to be packed into those two hours and the raucous frenzy that erupted within the quadrangle as the big clock struck noon. Hundreds of traders were licensed to deal on that stock exchange. Each was advised by four times their number in unlicensed small stock brokers who dreamed one day of getting big. 
The tulip traders were not allowed inside, and their business was done in the surrounding pubs. <laughs> Filthy tulip traders. Like, literally, they were, like, banned from entering the building. <laughs> right. Like, the, the actual stock... trading the tulips. Well, it's like the... No, no, no. Uh, people weren't trading tulips on the stock exchange. They were trading the idea of no, tulips? No, 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 no. The, the tulip trade did not even touch the actual stock exchange. It was all private. It literally happened in bars near the stock exchange. <laughs> wow. Like, the, the actual wealthy elite, the actual stock traders that, like, were making all of this money, like... Like, the actual stock traders looked at the tulip trade and went, uh, no. <laughs> like, they saw it for exactly what it was. Right, okay. Um, so it's like, you'd have these you'd have these florists thinking that they were, like, hot shit, you know, walking into the stock exchange to be like, it's like, yeah, I want to become a licensed stock trader. And they're like, get the fuck out of here, you yeah. fucking florist peasant. So business was done at the surrounding pubs, the most famous of which was named the uh, Koningstrad, the Golden Grape, and was owned by the brothers Jan and Cornelius Kvekel. <laughs> the <laughs> sons, Kvekel, uh, the sons of famed tulip breeder Cornelius Kvekel Sr., who had oh, no less than five varieties of tulip bearing the illustrious Kvekel name. And like, you can't see the spelling, it's spelled like quackle. <laughs> Quackle. The taverns of Harlem. <laughs> I love this section. The taverns of Harlem were notorious among Europe. Even at a time when drinking was universal, the drunk and drunkenness commonplace, the Dutch were Europe's most notorious sots. Beer was cheap. A whole evening's drinking could be enjoyed for less than a gelder. And Sir William Brederen found scarcely a sober man among the, de the denizens of the Dutch taverns he visited. Even the English, mean drinkers themselves, uh, complained of the Hollanders' appetite for beer and accused the Dutch of exporting drunkenness to England. <sighs> Dutchmen, uh, men and women alike, also seemed to have a dangerous passion for knives. Knife so they like gambling, drinking, drinking and knives. And knives. <laughs> Knife fights were so common, it became common practice in Dutch taverns to surrender one's weapons at the door. A common proverb at the time was, quote, a hundred Netherlanders, a hundred knives. Crazy. They, the Dutch liked knife fighting like how modern English people like soccer. Every Dutch citizen frequented the taverns. Men, women, and children were common. The atmosphere was described as, quote, convivial and inclusive, with an air of healthy suspicion. Everyone gets a knife. As it was exceedingly common for tavern staff to cheat their patrons by watering down beer or overcharging drunken patrons. Visitors to such establishments were frequently appalled by the Dutch's systematic approach to drunkenness. A Dutchman <laughs> seldom drank alone, and they came with company or would be invited into companies already in the midst of working down a flagon of beer. Typically, uh, the beginning of a new round was marked with a toast, something the tulip traders adopted with enthusiasm. French, trader, uh, French traveler Theophile de Vio commented, quote, they have 
They have so many rules and ceremonies for getting drunk that I am repelled as much by the, the discipline as I am by the excess. I'm both repelled and impressed. <laughs> like, so understand, at, in Europe at the time, like, this is, again, 1630s Europe. Yeah. The, the height of Puritanism. <laughs> right. Like, you didn't, like, if you drank, you... You were supposed to be ashamed of it. If you had fun with something, that was a sin. Like, yeah, but they, the Dutch have moved beyond having fun with it. It's like, it's like a, a job to them. It's like I'm gonna clock in for my nightly uh, drunkenness and session. knife fighting. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> hey, honey, how is work at the being drunk and getting into <laughs> knife fights factory? <laughs> Couldn't be better. Just great, honey. <laughs> God, I love my job. <laughs> go get the kids from the go get the kids out of the cupboards under our bed. <laughs> I, I want to tell them about the knife fights I saw today. <laughs> I just imagine there's like a there's like a a kid zone at these at these bars or these taverns, <laughs> they, and they have like little a, little knives they give to kids. There's a, there's a play place. <laughs> yeah, little plastic knives. Right, head down to head down to the the sign of the golden grape, and like there's like yeah. a. A, a 1600s kids play place that's like <laughs> made of wood and covered in like you know it's 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 covered in like depictions of jesus yeah kids are just getting splinters by default right it's <laughs> half of it is like there's like a little kid-sized uh stretching rack or whatever <laughs> like, like literally just a torture device yeah. <laughs> oh man you know there's there's one of those little panels where it's like find the numbers or something but it's like give yourself your own stigmata like <laughs> it's just two spikes on a piece of wood oh man this is all true too so. yeah this is that 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 actually happened that's completely real yeah i, I was uh <laughs> i was there it was here that the tulip traders did their business <laughs> which just oh my god so they got drunk like insane drunkenness knife fights gambling and tulip trading right and tulip trading <laughs> many of the elaborate customs developed by the colleges uh by the florists seem to have been deliberately modeled on the methods of the stock exchange a practice that must have heightened the florist's sense of self-importance yeah. and helped to persuade the tulip traders that they were involved in a genuine and properly regulated business as if this weren't on the nose enough, they began referring to their meetings in the taverns of Amsterdam as, quote, colleges. <laughs> Welcome to our tulip college. It's like, this is a table at a bar. Yeah. <laughs> I'll be taking attendance. Here, the bulbs were often put up for auction, where more established growers often hired a local attorney who had their agreements notarized as to ensure no disputes took place the florist colleges substituted uh, quicker and cheaper systems of recording. Each college elected a secretary uh, who kept records of all of the deals going on around the table. Mm. Which reminds me of like doing a group project in sixth grade <laughs> where it's like, we, it's like, oh, we have four people in your group. For every group, you have to, you have to elect a president and a secretary and a treasurer for your group project yeah. about like frog biology or something right it's like can't we just organize ourselves yeah <laughs> you have to have each four of those things this went on fine for several years 
furtive, and beneath the notice of the rich dealers, the florists traded the less valuable and more common tulips, uh, to them called vaudirage, or rags. <laughs> what would become the panic did not take place until December of 1636. To describe the mood in the florist colleges leading up to the panic, there is no quote better than this. Evan, buckle up. Okay. Here we go. Here we go. I'm excited. A weaver who sold his business to become a tulip trader named Gergot sent a letter to his friend Vermont, attempting to convince him to become a trader as well. He explains that he will teach him the secrets of the tavern trade, detailing how to become admitted to the colleges and advice on striking his first deal. He urges Wehrmont to come and drink wine with him. This trade, he confides, must be done with an intoxicated head. The bolder one is, the better. It Quote, must be done. With, must with an be intoxicated done. head. That's crazy. You have to you have to be shit faced to be yeah. a tulip trader. <laughs> right. Quote Because you are a newcomer, he warns, some will crow like a cock, some will say. Uh, some will say a new whore in the brothel, but take no notice. <sighs> so like if you're if you're new to the, the tulip trader colleges, they like make fun of you. They haze you. Yeah. Right. right. <laughs> Oof, a new whore in the brothel. So you want to sell tulips? Oh, you're going to be the king of tulips? <laughs> it's like joining the bloods. You have to be beat in. Yeah, exactly. <sighs> Once accepted into the company, the weaver continues. Vermont can start to deal in bulbs. First... First, he has to understand that it is the custom of the colleges that nobody actually offers tulips for sale. Instead, florists are expected to make their intentions known by means of dropping veiled hints and obfuscations. It is, for example, permissible to say, I have more yellows than I can use, but I want some white. Which, like, these fucking assholes... Yeah, it's like if you talk about it directly it's just not cool you have to just be like really casual about it it's you have to make yourself seem mysterious and yeah. vague it's just like just sell some fucking tulips you idiots yeah, right. which like no wonder the actual stock traders didn't let them within a mile of the actual stock trade yeah exactly like, it's like you idiots are going to ruin everything yeah it's like Every time I you read like an interview with a businessman research for researching this podcast, they're always the most no nonsense people. It's like yeah, it's like you don't fuck around here. It's a business. You don't yeah. like where money is involved. Where a lot of money is involved, you don't fuck around. Exactly. It's like you take it seriously. Yeah. <sighs> when it became clear that there was a deal to be made, two methods of trading were employed, depending on whether or not one was buying or selling. Uh, either by the O, meaning by the auction, or by the boards. The seller and the buyer are given slates to write upon. Each generally writes a number that is exorbitantly high or exorbitantly low. The boards are then passed to a pair of third parties, who mutually agree on a fair price. The compromise price would then be passed back to the original florist to be either accepted or rejected. They accepted by letting the price stand. However, a party could reject the price by erasing the slate. If both parties did this, the deal was off. If one, if only one did this, they had to pay a fine. Uh, uh, called what? 
called Vinkupsgeld. This uh, is this some kind of like weird convoluted game show? Like what is going on? If only one did this, they had to pay Vinkupsgeld, a fine of around two to six stuviers, the equivalent of ten to thirty dollars. Coincidentally, the price of a round of drinks. <laughs> it's a weird game. None of that matters. Um, <laughs> but what the reason that is important is that by basically in that system, uh, you were if you rejected a trade, you had to pay a fine, right? Mm. By charging traders for rejecting trades and staying safe uh, and staying safe with their money, the system was excellent at keeping the Vinkupsgeld flowing, which Vinkupsgeld translates to wine money. Mm. It's like if you reject a trade, you have to buy a round for that for the table. Okay. So while the system was excellent at keeping the Vinkupsgeld flowing, it was not, however, excellent at checking whether or not the traders were on top of their debts or that they even owned the bulbs they were trading. <laughs> yeah. In the absence of the physical bulbs, this would have been an elementary precaution. Yeah. The florists did not take it. Right. You have to I mean these are very basic things you might want to check beforehand. This system is idiotic. Yeah. <laughs> when the colleges provided what the colleges provided was a system that encouraged unbridled speculation while offering their members no safeguards against insolvency and fraud. It was now actually possible for a florist to sell bulbs they didn't have in the expectation that they would be able to buy the given bulb by the time their customer came to collect. Our boy Gergo boasted of earning 60,000 guilders, the equivalent of $6 million from the flower trade, in only four months. In the winter of 1636, the real tulip maniacs were to be given the chance to match him. This brings up uh, the fantastic story of the orphans of Wotterwinkel. I'm ready. Wouter Bartelmeiswinkel was one of the richest men in the Netherlands. He was a tavern keep by trade, but that, but was also the uh, the owner of the Schutzdolen Inn at the center of Alkmaar, one of the hottest spots for the tulip trade. His problem was that of every man who would became who would become wealthy during the tulip boom. He could not lay his hands on his money; it lay buried in the ground in the form of bulbs. He had gotten into the tulip trade early. His collection contained some of the most valuable tulips in the world, including an exceedingly rare violettin called an Admiral van Einkusen. Not one but two viceroys, five cousins of the Semper Augustus called a Brabanson, three Admiral van der Eyck's, an Admiral Liefkens, a Brun Perper, a Paragon Schilder, and no less than seven copies of an increasingly sought-after Gouda Bizarden. Wow. At the height of the mania, every single one of these bulbs could have changed hands for well over a thousand guilders. And most were substantially more. It was the finest collection of tulips in the realm. But the most impressive thing about Vinko's collection was not the tulips it contained. It was that he actually physically owned every single tulip in it. Wow. Unfortunately for Herr Winkel and his seven children, he did not live long enough to reap the profits from his expert trading. Oh. 
he saw his tulips flower in the spring of 1636 and died in the early summer, mere months from the fateful December. Oh, that sucks. His his children were collected by a representative of the Alkmaar Orphanage. Orphanages in the Dutch Republic were actually quite nice. They also functioned as hospice care for the elderly and were generally well-funded and were generally well-funded and comfortable places. Nice. So they were generally well-funded and comfortable places. This was, in part, due to the Dutch laws that stipulated that when one died and left dependents without care, their assets were sold at auction, Mm -hmm. with the benefits going to the orphanage. Right. Assets that, in this case, included Herr Winkel's prized tulips. The funeral was held in 1636, but it was not until December, with Winkel's collection carefully graded and weighed and back in the ground under the watchful eye of, of an expert gardener hired specifically for the occasion that the trustees finally authorized the sale. It was unclear whether the, this delay was due to the labyrinthine bureaucracy or to one of the regents of the court waiting for just the right moment to sell the Winkel bulbs. But be it accident or design, the auction took place on February 5th, 1637, and it was held at the perfect moment. (laughs) Since the time of Vinkel's death, tulip prices had doubled. Right. And remember, Vinkel's tavern was the place for the tulip trade in the city. He was one of the most well-known and well-respected tulip traders in the entire world. Yeah. News of the auction spread like wildfire, and traders had ample time to prepare. Even before the proceedings began, one buyer struck an under-the-table deal with the regent for sale of the crown jewel of Winkel's collection, the Violetten Admiral van Enkusen. When the tulip had finally been lifted for grading, it was discovered to have a viable offset. This substantially uh, increased the price, yeah. and it was sold for 5,200 <laughs> guilders. He also purchased two of the Brabansons for 3,200 guilders, as well as a miscellaneous lot that totaled his purchase to over 21,000 guilders, <sighs> the equivalent of $2.1 million. That is crazy. For approximately seven tulips. That's when you know you have a bubble. This lucrative private sale set the tone for the auction. The bidding was rapid. The prices recorded here were easily the highest ever. Yeah. It became obvious to those watching the bidding that Volterwinkel's bulbs were fetching sums that were staggering, even by the standards of the day. By the end of the auction, the hundred or so tulips were sold for around of 90,000 guilders. This was the peak of the mania. A pamphleteer at the time gave perhaps the most vivid description of the prices paid for tulips at the time. A flower worth 3,000 guilders could be exchanged for, okay? So this is one tulip worth 3,000 guilders. Yeah. For For that price, you could also buy... Eight fat pigs, four oxen, 12 sheep, 24 tons of wheat, 48 tons of rye, 
126 gallons of wine, 144 gallons of beer, two tons of butter, 1,000 pounds of cheese, a silver goblet, a pack of clothes, a bed with mattress and bedding, and a ship. So, like, enough to feed and clothe and house a family for at least a year. Yes. (laughs) Easily. From this perspective, the tulip trade seems beyond healthy. Booming, in fact. Yeah, yeah. But there were disturbing indications that not all was well. So, all right. If, If this is a roller coaster, like... Here we go. We're going down. One sign was the florist's constant search for novelty. Although there were a handful of varieties seen as king above all others, the value of most tulips was determined by fashion alone, and fashions change. Yeah. The trade of most bulbs was not simply unstable. It was, by definition, illogical. (laughs) No market can flourish if it does not possess elements of stability and predictability, and the tulip trade had neither. Yeah. Remember, the value of the superbly fine bulbs was determined by the people who were actually purchasing them. Right. Like, purchasing the physical bulbs. The connoisseurs and uber-wealthy for their... uh, generally purchased by the connoisseurs and uber-wealthy for their use as oddities and fashion objects. Simply put, for the rarest varieties, there was demand. But there, this was not true for the more common varieties, who were often simply traded because they were what was available. By February, the florists became increasingly aware that their market was running out of control. The Winkel auction did provide a burst of confidence in the market, but even so, a few of the more cautious dealers began to wonder just how long this could go on for and mm. just how high the prices could get. Yeah. Here and there, the isolated florist began to sell off their stock and divest. People began Here to wonder. Go. People began to wonder if these traders knew something they didn't. Perhaps they thought they might sell off a bulb or two as well. This next section in my notes is titled Bust. (laughs) It was the first Tuesday of February in 1637. As was the custom, an an established member of the Harlem College opened the day's trade by testing the state of the market. He offered a pound of sisters for sale. He asked a fair price. Uh, 1,250 guilders. Nothing. Cautiously, he knocked the price down to 1,100 guilders. Nothing. He cut the price down to 1,000. Nothing. Time stopped. (laughs) In all likelihood, every last one of the traders present had paid similar prices for bulbs within the past few days in anticipation of selling again for another handsome profit. But now, in a matter of no more than a minute, the dream was shattered. And slowly, one by one, like a steam train hissing and chugging its colossal weight into motion, they began to wake up. The mood was one of confusion. Trading had to be suspended for the day. What were they to do? 
Most simply wandered out into the streets, pointed in the vague direction of home. But as the realization dawned, their bleary, their bleary stroll became a pace, then a run, then a sprint. Every florist in Harlem was fixated on a single word, gripped by a single impulse. Sell. <laughs> college after college, town after town, bulbs that had sold for thousands of guilders only days before could now not be sold for any price. A few dealers tried to stimulate renewed interest by organizing mock options or, or offering bulbs for ridiculous discounts, but even they were ignored. In most places, the tavern trade crashed so completely, so utterly, that it, uh, it, it was not a question of prices falling to a quarter or a tenth of what they had been. The markets simply ceased to exist. Gergo was one of the florists completely blindsided by the collapse. His first reaction was to head out and buy and sell again. <laughs> yeah. He retained some of his trademark confidence by saying, quote, Flora may be ill, but she will not die. <laughs> but upon entering the colleges, he found that the market had vanished. Oh, he no. was unable to find a single buyer for his bulbs, and his thoughts began to drift to his many, many debts. <laughs> and the loom that he had sold to break into the business. Yeah. He asked his friend what to do. Vermont's uh, advice was brutal in its simplicity. The tulip trade is dead, and there is no chance of reviving it. The florists had no option but to return to their old jobs and hoped their debts could be discharged honorably. Yeah. The collapse was so complete that records of prices paid for bulbs in the spring of 1637 simply do not exist. By then, the only buyers left in the market were the connoisseurs and perhaps a few rich florists whose wealth was not wholly dependent on tulips. Only the rarest varieties had any chance of actually being sold. Right. According to a contemporary, a tulip that sold for 5,000 guilders before the crash was later sold for only 50. Wow explanation for the catastrophe lies in the sheer speed with which bulbs had previously changed hands. Yeah. See, in bull markets, when the price of stocks are rising, there are always bears. People yeah. who hold on to their stock and wait for the prices to fall so that they can buy stock cheap. Simply right. put, poor markets are good for buyers. The housing yeah. crash of 2008 was, a great, was great for real estate developers because land was cheap. Yeah. The thing here was that the pound goods, the cheap common tulips, were literally worthless. Yeah, yeah. There was no demand. No connoisseur would plant them. They yeah. only had value to the people who traded them. There was nothing for a bear trader to exploit. Right. Worse, the vast majority of florists had sold all their assets to get into the market. So when they traveled to other towns where news had not yet spread in an attempt to sell off their inventory, they were often unable to trade their bulbs for anything but more promissory notes. No one had cash. Right, because it was all imaginary. Even worse, most florists participated in the Windhandel, and when the market collapsed, they remained liable to fulfill the futures they had all agreed to. Oh no. Practically every florist had deposits on tulips that were now utterly worthless. Many had no choice but to default. This is terrifying. 
The growers were similarly affected. In May of 1637, the growers of the realm held a conference to discuss ways of minimizing the damage to their business. Growers from every province elected representatives who were then scheduled to meet at Amsterdam. The growers' problems were nearly as bad as the traders. Yeah. The vast majority of them had made considerable investment into their crops, incurring large debts in order to expand their operation to meet the previously rising demands created by the florists, right? Yeah. Like, they're like, oh, this is this is a great market. I, I'll jump in selling shit to all these florists. But right. they, they had already invested so much in making in a market that they thought was going to have buyers forever. Yeah. The popular resolution was, in essence, to pretend the collapse never happened. <laughs> How do you do that? All sales would be honored, but the florist would be required to pay 10% the sale price as compensation. This was a pittance, but it but perfectly reasonable given the circumstances of the collapse. Yeah. The representatives from Amsterdam were the only ones to not sign the agreement. It's unclear why they refused. Uh, after all, the bulb farmers had, like, after all, in their eyes, the bulb farmers had every right to, uh, to pursue their claims to full payment in the eyes of the law. Yeah. And asking for only 10% of the sale of the sale price was like admitting defeat. It's like, we want our money. Yeah. How dare you only ask for 10%. (laughs) The problem here is that the Grand Council of Tulip Farmers had no legal power. Yeah, right. They weren't even allowed, like, the, the tulip traders weren't even allowed on the stock exchange. Like, they're right. on the outside of the legal system. It's like, this is what happens when you wind handle. This is yeah. what happens when you don't... When... The market is regulated for reason, guys. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and then what happens when you lose everything? You wish you had that regulation. Quote, When my buyer pays me, I will pay you, Gergo assumed, a, uh, assured a creditor. Uh, but then he adds in an ominous caveat, but he's nowhere to be found. <laughs> <laughs> Which, like, I mean, the obvious, the the real answer there is that Gergo got cheated out of, like, he got sold bunk tulips by some like by like a a huckster a a tulip trickster yeah who then fled town but i i'm choosing to read that as gergo murdered his buyer put him under his floorboards (laughs) it was clear that the bulb trade was not enough to solve the crisis it was the problem of the courts now amidst the panic the general public of the Netherlands were having a field day. (laughs) The vast majority of normal Dutchmen instinctively hated the florists. Yeah. Hundreds of pamphlets were published full of jocular satires mocking the (laughs) flower-obsessed twits. The chief character among them was Flora, the Roman goddess of flowers and prostitutes. She would sell herself to the highest bidder, raising her price every time. Every lover was richer and more generous than the last, yet foolish men ruined themselves trying to prove their devotion. She was the perfect metaphor, the perfect avatar of the Dutch public's mocking disdain for the florists. It was evident in titles uh, of pamphlets at the time published like, quote, Flora's sickbed, quote, 
the fall of the garden whore, the villain <laughs> goddess Flora. Oh, it's so mean. I love it. It's amazing. In one broadside, a weaver speaks angrily of how Flora seduced him. Another, revealingly titled, quote, Charge Against the Pagan and Turkish Tulip Bulbs, uh, bears bitter antagonism towards a goddess who, pub- who promised everything, yet left those foolish enough to trust her with less than nothing. Man. Which, like, yeah, that's exactly what happened. Yeah. Like, yeah. Y'all were idiots. <laughs> right. Artist Peter Nopel notably produced a painting titled Flora's Fool's Cap, or Scenes from a Remarkable Year 1637, When One Fool Hatched Another, The Idle Rich Lost Their Wealth, and The Wise Lost Their Senses. That's the whole title. Right, and it's so listen great. To, listen to the description. <laughs> it features bulb dealers meeting at a drinking house called At the Sign of the Foolish Bulbs, which is actually a giant jester's cap. The sign right. outside the inn shows two men fighting. In the foreground, uh, men carrying wheelbarrows of bulbs are on their way to dump the worthless things into a dung heap. Gardeners <laughs> stand and watch while Beelzebub, armed with a fishing rod, casts about, fishing with worthless tulip contracts on the end of his line. Flora rides past on a donkey, gesturing for the crowd to keep their distance. She is, as the picture explains, being driven off for her, quote, whorish immorality. <laughs> I I just love that like like at the sign of the like at the sign of the fool's bulbs that's a reference to the golden grape right. like the uh the original tavern which like people were often described as trading at the sign of the golden grape right yeah but then in this but then this this legend fucking peter he's like all you were fucking clowns and you're trading in your stupid clown house for clowns <laughs> <laughs> go back to your clown house and do your clown chores go put go put your clown hat back on and go sit in your house that is also a giant clown hat put on your giant shoes you clown but not all works were critical a pamphlet was published by the title of quote a new song about the connoisseurs who don't go into the tavern and because of that wish to be distinguished from the florists attempted to show that lovers of the gentle tulip were not at fault and still <laughs> deserved respect. <laughs> but while the writers of the era heaped their satire onto the florists, the legal authorities of the realm were slowly coming to terms with the problem of averting the financial catastrophe threatened by the collapse. <laughs> yeah. The task of the regency was to reconcile the two major parties involved, the growers, who wanted to be paid their 10%, and the traders, who wanted to pay them nothing. Yeah. Normally, the problem would go to the local regents, but they seemed unsure of themselves. This was new territory, which, like, you can't blame them. Nothing like this has happened before. Yeah. In Harlem, they first decreed that all transactions would be annulled, but a few weeks later, they reversed, saying that all debts would be upheld. Nobody's really sure how they expected the traders to pay, though. Yeah. Like, None of these people have money. Yeah, like, what are you going to do? Like, you just, everyone, you know, goes into indentured servitude or something? That's sort of, like, debtor's prisons were definitely a thing during the time. Like, the guy that, the guy that accidentally ate that, that, like, ate that guy's tulip, he got sent to a debtor's prison. Right, which is horrifying. Right, which is horrific. Um, 
the indis this, indistinct this indecision was uncharacteristic of the Regency and is likely the result of intense lobbying by the interested parties. Yeah. But then, within a week of publishing the Third Decree, they grew frustrated and kicked the matter up the totem pole to their superiors. The feds were involved now. <laughs> the court was methodical. It took its time to gather information on the panic. It was, uh, it was the end of April when the court finally returned their findings to the, to the states. Yet, when the learned judges passed their judgment, they also admitted they did not fully understand what caused the bulb craze or why things got out of hand. Yeah. <laughs> like, the judges did all this research about, like, who was owed what and exactly how it should all be paid and, like, what is the most just way to resolve this issue. Yeah. But then they, like, it pretty much said in court, like, we don't know what the fuck y'all did. Yeah. And... <laughs> How did you like, mess this up so badly? It's like we left you alone for we left you alone with some tulips for like two days, and yeah. now the entire economy is collapsed. What the fuck did you do? Uh, yeah, well, sorry. <sighs> they were, however, certain of one thing: they didn't want anything to do with this bullshit. Yeah, they threw the right. issue. They threw the issue back to the regional governments, along with the legal authority to take action. A course for referring any disputes that they couldn't handle back up to the plate, back up to the Hague, mm. right? So yeah. they're like, they basically like, they wrote up like a dossier, like, all right, this is what happened, this is what we recommend you do, but you bitches deal with this. Yeah. And if you have a if you have a problem that you can't handle, like an individual case that you can't handle, go ahead and send them up the pipeline. Yeah. Their decision was to allow the destitute traders to file for bankruptcy, but also to completely ban the tulip trade, which oh, forced traders and growers to make nice on their own. Right. Some dickheads did try to sue to recoup their lost fortunes, but only a tiny fraction of these cases ever made it to court, and even right. less were successful. Right. Most florists had nothing to pay with. This routinely bothered the Regency. And it wasn't until May of 1638 that they truly put the matter to bed. All those interested could cancel their contracts by paying 3.5% the sale price, and ownership of the bulbs would revert back to the owners, uh, or to the growers. It was less than they expected, but it kept them from ruin. <sighs> and to close it out, in 1639, a grower was repeatedly harassed by his burgomaster, a man by the name of Van Ravenstein, to whom the grower was deeply in debt. The grower had sold everything, but when the burgomaster died in 1641, he had not received most of his money, and his heirs continued to demand payment. To make ends meet, the man returned to his previous line of work, and when he died in 1656, two decades after the collapse, he left behind a debt that still toted 897 guilders, and one of the largest bodies of paintings ever produced by one artist. His name was Jan van Goyen, and he remains to this day one of the most influential artists in history. He was the last known victim of the tulip mania. <sighs> wow. There you go. Like honestly like uh i'm just gonna go ahead and offer my fullest apologies for my cats episode last week 
after that (laughs) (laughs) incredibly (laughs) thoroughly researched, well-written, insane historical delve into like the rise of a phenomenon that had never happened before in like you know like the economy of a nation oh man like oh man like one it was my dumb like i chose to watch cats with you (laughs) like like that's on me but i i think some like Sometimes you want a quarter house steak and sometimes you just want a fucking hot dog, you know? Yeah. Sometimes you just want something you just want something good and tasty. But boy did I enjoy doing that research. That yeah. was so much fun to learn about. This was a crazy story. Yeah, and you told you told it very well and I was I was intrigued the entire time. Yes, yes. Um, okay, so all of that, I have the book in front of me now because I prepared, Yeah. Uh, came from the book uh, Tulipomania by uh, Mike Dash. And a lot of the stuff that I, uh, that I, like, I pretty much read entire paragraphs, whole cloth from yeah. this book because it's so well done. Shout out to Mike Dash. Yes, and the, I only covered maybe 60% of the information in this book. Like, there's so much more here. Yeah. Um, like like the last like 20% of the book is actually a second smaller tu- like a second smaller tulip panic that happened in Persia like 100 years earlier. Oh wow. Yeah. That's crazy. So there there you go. That's the tulip panic. Well, I feel like learning about this you can just learn so much about like speculation bubbles and I know we had talked about doing more episodes about that because those they're just so important for the economy and understanding like you know the da- how like the dangers of them and like what leads to them and all just like the craziness of these like industries that are you know based on imaginary numbers imaginary values that they like, have no basis in reality right it's like all it, it's it's insane and there's like there's reasons that all these things have rules you yeah know? exactly otherwise it's it would like... just people would die otherwise well it's like it's not good for the traders it's like most people lose everything yeah like it's horrible for the economy to do it to do this exactly that's that's crazy just yeah thank you for that episode that was that was a lot of fun that was something different ah. a little uh, different flavor for desperate acts of capital yeah i'm really glad you like it i i was i i worked really hard on this episode yeah definitely definitely i can tell and i'm excited to i mean it opens the portal to a lot more historical things we could cover in the future yes oh my god there's so many other historical topics i want to cover but uh we should wrap this up yeah um if you're listening uh, if you if you're listening and you like this content, you should follow us on Patreon. We have uh, extra bonus content that doesn't get put into these episodes, as well as uh, voting on polls for topics that we cover in the future. Yeah, totally. And there's also if you s- subscribe on the highest tier, you can get your name in the show notes. And uh, there's always a potential that we add more perks in the future and just post some, like random crazy stuff on the Patreon feed. It's uh it's just yeah. a, a place of, uh, you know, endless possibilities and lots yeah, of bonus know, content. You never know what you're going to get. The only way that you could learn is by uh, donating, maybe throwing us some, uh, some cash. Yeah, support support our, our efforts to uh, bring you the stories of these catastrophes. So that we can support you with some more delicious, delicious content. <laughs> All right. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening. We Big things are coming. Big things are coming. All right. Wow, that's crazy.
Hey everyone, thank you so much for listening to Desperate Acts of Capitalism. If you like the show, please subscribe to us on Apple, Spotify, or Stitcher. And if you really want to make us happy, you can leave us a nice rating or review. You can follow us on Instagram at Desperate Acts of Capitalism and on Tumblr, link in the show notes. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time on Desperate Acts of Capitalism.